Chapter One of the Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel. Translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter One The Nature of the Problem the condition of civilization and of thought at the close of the nineteenth century progress of our knowledge of nature of the organic and inorganic sciences the law of substance and the law of evolution progress of technical science and of applied chemistry stagnancy in other departments of life legal and political administration education and the church conflict of reason and dogma anthropism cosmological perspective cosmological theorems refutation of the delusion of man's importance number of world riddles criticism of the seven enigmas the way to solve them function of the senses and of the brain induction and deduction reason sentiment and revelation philosophy and science experience and speculation dualism and monism the close of the nineteenth century offers one of the most remarkable spectacles to the thoughtful observer all educated people are agreed that it has in many respects immeasurably outstripped its predecessors and has achieved tasks that were deemed impracticable at its commencement an entirely new character has been given to the whole of our modern civilization not only by our astounding theoretical progress in sound knowledge of nature but also by the remarkably fertile practical application of that knowledge in technical science industry commerce and so forth on the other hand however we have made little or no progress in moral and social life in comparison with earlier centuries at times there has been serious reaction and from this obvious conflict there have arisen not only an uneasy sense of dismemberment and falseness but even the danger of grave catastrophes in the political and social world it is then not merely the right but the sacred duty of every honorable and humanitarian thinker to devote himself conscientiously to the settlement of that conflict and to warding off the dangers that it brings in its train in our conviction this can only be done by a courageous effort to attain the truth and by the formation of a clear view of the world a view that shall be based on truth and conformity to reality if we recall to mind the imperfect condition of science at the beginning of the century and compare this with the magnificent structure of its closing years 
we are compelled to admit that marvellous progress has been made during its course every single branch of science can boast that it has especially during the latter half of the century made numerous acquisitions of the utmost value both in our microscopic knowledge of the little and in our telescopic investigation of the great we have attained an invaluable insight that seemed inconceivable a hundred years ago improved methods of microscopic and biological research have not only revealed to us an invisible world of living things in the kingdom of the protists full of an infinite wealth of forms but they have taught us to recognize in the tiny cell the all-pervading elementary organism of whose social communities the tissues the body of every multicellular plant and animal even that of man is composed this anatomical knowledge is of extreme importance and it is supplemented by the embryological discovery that each of the higher multicellular organisms is developed out of one simple cell the impregnated ovum the cellular theory which has been founded on that discovery has given us the first true interpretation of the physical chemical and even the psychological processes of life those mysterious phenomena for whose explanation it had been customary to postulate a supernatural vital force or immortal soul moreover the true character of disease has been made clear and intelligible to the physician for the first time by the cognate science of cellular pathology the discoveries of the nineteenth century in the inorganic world are no less important physics has made astounding progress in every section of its province in optics and acoustics in magnetism and electricity in mechanics and thermodynamics and what is still more important it has proved the unity of the forces of the entire universe the mechanical theory of heat has shown how intimately they are connected and how each can in certain conditions transform itself directly into another spectral analysis has taught us that the same matter which enters into the composition of all bodies on earth including its living inhabitants builds up the rest of the planets the sun and the most distant stars astrophysics has considerably enlarged our cosmic perspective in revealing to us in the immeasurable depths of space millions of circling spheres larger than our earth and like it in endless transformation in an eternal rhythm of life and death chemistry has introduced us to a multitude of new substances all of which arise from the combination of a few about seventy elements that are incapable of further analysis some of them play a most important part in every branch of life it has been shown that one of these elements carbon 
is the remarkable substance that effects the endless variety of organic syntheses and thus may be considered the chemical basis of life all the particular advances however of physics and chemistry yield in theoretical importance to the discovery of the great law which brings them all to one common focus the law of substance as this fundamental cosmic law establishes the eternal persistence of matter and force their unvarying constancy throughout the entire universe it has become the pole star that guides our monistic philosophy through the mighty labyrinth to a solution of the world problem since we intend to make a general survey of the actual condition of our knowledge of nature and its progress during the recent century in the following chapters we shall delay no longer with the review of its particular branches we would only mention one important advance which was contemporary with the discovery of the law of substance and which supplements it the establishment of the theory of evolution it is true that there were philosophers who spoke of the evolution of things a thousand years ago but the recognition that such a law dominates the entire universe and that the world is nothing else than an eternal evolution of substance is a fruit of the nineteenth century it was not until the second half of this century that it attained to perfect clearness and a universal application the immortal merit of establishing the doctrine on an empirical basis and pointing out its world-wide application belongs to the great scientist charles darwin he it was who in eighteen fifty nine supplied a solid foundation for the theory of descent which the able french naturalist jean lamarck had already sketched in its broad outlines in eighteen o nine and the fundamental idea of which had been almost prophetically enunciated in seventeen ninety nine by germany's greatest poet and thinker wolfgang goethe in that theory we have the key to the question of all questions to the great enigma of the place of man in nature and of his natural development if we are in a position to-day to recognize the sovereignty of the law of evolution and indeed of a monistic evolution in every province of nature and to use it in conjunction with the law of substance for a simple interpretation of all natural phenomena we owe it chiefly to those three distinguished naturalists they shine as three stars of the first magnitude amid all the great men of the century this marvellous progress in a theoretical knowledge of nature has been followed by a manifold practical application in every branch of civilized life if we are to-day in the age of commerce if international trade and communication have attained dimensions beyond the conception of any previous age if we have transcended the limits of space and time by our telegraph and telephone we owe it in the first place to the technical advancement of physics especially in the application of steam and electricity 
if in photography we can with the utmost ease compel the sunbeam to create for us in a moment's time a correct picture of any object we like if we have made enormous progress in agriculture and in a variety of other pursuits if in surgery we have brought an infinite relief to human pain by our chloroform and morphia our antiseptics and serous therapeutics we owe it all to applied chemistry but it is so well known how much we have surpassed all earlier centuries through these and other scientific discoveries that we need linger over the question no longer while we look back with a just pride on the immense progress of the nineteenth century in a knowledge of nature and in its practical application we find unfortunately a very different and far from agreeable picture when we turn to another and not less important province of modern life to our great regret we must endorse the words of alfred wallace compared with our astounding progress in physical science and its practical application our system of government of administrative justice and of national education and our entire social and moral organization remain in a state of barbarism to convince ourselves of the truth of this grave indictment we need only cast an unprejudiced glance at our public life or look into the mirror that is daily offered to us by the press the organ of public sentiment we begin our review with justice the fundamentum regnorum no one can maintain that its condition to-day is in harmony with our advanced knowledge of man and the world not a week passes in which we do not read of judicial decisions over which every thoughtful man shakes his head in despair many of the decisions of our higher and lower courts are simply unintelligible we are not referring in the treatment of this particular world problem to the fact that many modern states in spite of their paper constitutions are really governed with absolute despotism and that many who occupy the bench give judgment less in accordance with their sincere conviction than with wishes expressed in higher quarters we readily admit that the majority of judges and counsel decide conscientiously and err simply from human frailty most of their errors indeed are due to defective preparation it is popularly supposed that these are just the men of highest education and that on that very account they have the preference in nominations to different offices however this famed legal education is for the most part rather of a formal and technical character they have but a superficial acquaintance with that chief and peculiar object of their activity the human organism and its most important function the mind that is evident from the curious views as to the liberty of the will responsibility etc which we encounter daily i once told an eminent jurist 
that the tiny spherical ovum from which every man is developed is as truly endowed with life as the embryo of two or seven or even nine months he laughed incredulously most of the students of jurisprudence have no acquaintance with anthropology psychology and the doctrine of evolution the very first requisites for a correct estimate of human nature they have no time for it their time is already too largely bespoken for an exhaustive study of beer and wine and for the noble art of fencing the rest of their valuable study time is required for the purpose of learning some hundreds of paragraphs of law books a knowledge of which is supposed to qualify the jurist for any position whatever in our modern civilized community we shall touch but lightly on the unfortunate province of politics for the unsatisfactory condition of the modern political world is only too familiar in a great measure its evils are due to the fact that most of our officials are jurists that is men of high technical education but utterly devoid of that thorough knowledge of human nature which is only obtained by the study of comparative anthropology and the monistic psychology men without an acquaintance with those social relations of which we find the earlier types in comparative zoology and the theory of evolution in the cellular theory and the study of the protists we can only arrive at a correct knowledge of the structure and life of the social body the state through a scientific knowledge of the structure and life of the individuals who compose it and the cells of which they are in turn composed if our political rulers and our representatives of the people possessed this invaluable biological and anthropological knowledge we should not find our journals so full of the sociological blunders and political nonsense which at present are far from adorning our parliamentary reports and even many of our official documents worst of all is it when the modern state flings itself into the arms of the reactionary church and when the narrow-minded self-interest of parties and the infatuation of short-sighted party leaders lend their support to the hierarchy then are witnessed such sad scenes as the german reichstag puts before our eyes even at the close of the nineteenth century we have the spectacle of the educated german people in the power of the ultramontane centre under the rule of the roman papacy which is its bitterest and most dangerous enemy then superstition and stupidity reign instead of right and reason never will our government improve until it casts off the fetters of the church and raises the views of the citizens on man and the world to a higher level by a general scientific education that does not raise the question of any special form of constitution whether a monarchy or a republic be preferable whether the constitution should be aristocratic or democratic are subordinate questions in comparison with the supreme question shall the modern civilized state be spiritual or secular shall it be theocratic 
ruled by the irrational formulae of faith and by clerical despotism or nomocratic under the sovereignty of rational laws and civic right the first task is to kindle a rational interest in our youth and to uplift our citizens and free them from superstition that can only be achieved by a timely reform of our schools our education of the young is no more in harmony with modern scientific progress than our legal and political world physical science which is so much more important than all other sciences and which properly understood really embraces all the so-called moral sciences is still regarded as a mere accessory in our schools if not treated as the cinderella of the curriculum most of our teachers still give the most prominent place to that dead learning which has come down from the cloistral schools of the middle ages in the front rank we have grammatical gymnastics and an immense waste of time over a thorough knowledge of classics and of the history of foreign nations ethics the most important object of practical philosophy is entirely neglected and its place is usurped by the ecclesiastical creed faith must take precedence over knowledge not that scientific faith which leads to a monistic religion but the irrational superstition that lays the foundation of a perverted christianity the valuable teaching of modern cosmology and anthropology of biology and evolution is most inadequately imparted if not entirely unknown in our higher schools while the memory is burdened with a mass of philological and historical facts which are utterly useless either from the point of view of theoretical education or for the practical purposes of life moreover the antiquated arrangements and the distribution of faculties in the universities are just as little in harmony with the point we have reached in monistic science as the curriculum of the primary and secondary schools the climax of the opposition to modern education and its foundation advanced natural philosophy is reached of course in the church we are not speaking here of ultramontane papistry nor of the orthodox evangelical tendencies which do not fall far short of it in ignorance and in the crass superstition of their dogmas we are imagining ourselves for the moment to be in the church of a liberal protestant minister who has a good average education and who finds room for the rights of reason by the side of his faith there besides excellent moral teaching which is in perfect harmony with our own monistic ethics and humanitarian discussion of which we cordially approve we hear ideas on the nature of god of the world of man and of life which are directly opposed to all scientific experience it is no wonder that physicists and chemists doctors and philosophers who have made a thorough study of nature refuse a hearing to such preachers our theologians and our politicians are just as ignorant as our philosophers and our jurists of that elementary knowledge of nature which is based on the monistic theory of evolution and which is already far exceeded in the triumph of our modern learning from this opposition 
which we can only briefly point out at present there arise grave conflicts in our modern life which urgently demand a settlement our modern education the outcome of our great advance in knowledge has a claim upon every department of public and private life it would see humanity raised by the instrumentality of reason to that higher grade of culture and consequently to that better path toward happiness which has been opened out to us by the progress of modern science that aim however is vigorously opposed by the influential parties who would detain the mind in the exploded views of the middle ages with regard to the most important problems of life they linger in the fold of traditional dogma and would have reason prostrate itself before their higher revelation that is the condition of things to a very large extent in theology and philosophy in sociology and jurisprudence it is not that the motives of the latter are to be attributed as a rule to pure self-interest they spring partly from ignorance of the facts and partly from an indolent acquiescence in tradition the most dangerous of the three great enemies of reason and knowledge is not malice but ignorance or perhaps indolence the gods themselves still strive in vain against these two latter influences when they have happily vanquished the first one of the main supports of that reactionary system is still what we may call anthropism i designate by this term that powerful and world-wide group of erroneous opinions which opposes the human organism to the whole of the rest of nature and represents it to be the preordained end of the organic creation an entity essentially distinct from it a godlike being closer examination of this group of ideas shows it to be made up of three different dogmas which we may distinguish as the anthropocentric the anthropomorphic and the anthropolatrous footnote e heckel systematische philogenie 1895 volume 3 pages 646 to 650 anthropolatry means a divine worship of human nature one the anthropocentric dogma culminates in the idea that man is the preordained center and aim of all terrestrial life or in a wider sense of the whole universe as this error is extremely conducive to man's interest and as it is intimately connected with the creation myth of the three great mediterranean religions and with the dogmas of the mosaic christian and mohammedan theologies it still dominates the greater part of the civilized world two the anthropomorphic dogma is likewise connected with the creation myth of the three aforesaid religions and of many others it likens the creation and control of the world by god to the artificial creation of a talented engineer or mechanic and to the administration of a wise ruler god as creator sustainer and ruler of the world is thus represented after a purely human fashion in his thought and work 
hence it follows in turn that man is godlike god made man to his own image and likeness the older naive mythology is pure homotheism attributing human shape flesh and blood to the gods it is more intelligible than the modern mystic theosophy that adores a personal god as an invisible properly speaking gaseous being yet makes him think speak and act in human fashion it gives us the paradoxical picture of a gaseous vertebrate three the anthropolatric dogma naturally results from this comparison of the activity of god and man it ends in the apotheosis of the human organism a further result is the belief in the personal immortality of the soul and the dualistic dogma of the twofold nature of man whose immortal soul is conceived as but the temporary inhabitant of the mortal frame thus these three anthropistic dogmas variously adapted to the respective professions of the different religions came at length to be vested with an extraordinary importance and proved the source of the most dangerous errors the anthropistic view of the world which springs from them is in irreconcilable opposition to our monistic system indeed it is at once disproved by our new cosmological perspective not only the three anthropistic dogmas but many other notions of the dualistic philosophy and orthodox religion are found to be untenable as soon as we regard them critically from the cosmological perspective of our monistic system we understand by that the comprehensive view of the universe which we have from the highest point of our monistic interpretation of nature from that standpoint we see the truth of the following cosmological theorems most of which in our opinion have already been amply demonstrated one the universe or the cosmos is eternal infinite and illimitable two its substance with its two attributes matter and energy fills infinite space and is in eternal motion three this motion runs on through infinite time as an unbroken development with a periodic change from life to death from evolution to devolution four the innumerable bodies which are scattered about the space-filling ether all obey the same law of substance while the rotating masses slowly move towards their destruction and dissolution in one part of space others are springing into new life and development in other quarters of the universe five our sun is one of these unnumbered perishable bodies and our earth is one of the countless transitory planets that encircle them six our earth has gone through a long process of cooling before water in liquid form the first condition of organic life could settle thereon seven the ensuing biogenetic process the slow development and transformation of countless organic forms must have taken many millions of years considerably over a hundred footnote 
confer my Cambridge lecture, The Last Link, Geological Time and Evolution. 8. Among the different kinds of animals which arose in the later stages of the biogenetic process on Earth, the vertebrates have far outstripped all other competitors in the evolutionary race. 9. The most important branch of the vertebrates, the mammals, were developed later, during the Triassic period, from the lower amphibia and the reptilia. 10. The most perfect and most highly developed branch of the class mammalia is the order of primates, which first put in an appearance by development from the lowest prochoriata at the beginning of the tertiary period, at least three million years ago. 11. The youngest and most perfect twig of the branch primates is man, who sprang from a series of man-like apes towards the end of the tertiary period. 12. Consequently, the so-called history of the world, that is, the brief period of a few thousand years which measures the duration of civilization, is an evanescently short episode in the long course of organic evolution, just as this, in turn, is merely a small portion of the history of our planetary system, and as our Mother Earth is a mere speck in the sunbeam in the illimitable universe, so man himself is but a tiny grain of protoplasm in the perishable framework of organic nature. Nothing seems to me better adapted than this magnificent cosmological perspective to give us the proper standard and the broad outlook which we need in the solution of the vast enigmas that surround us. It not only clearly indicates the true place of man in nature, but it dissipates the prevalent illusion of man's supreme importance and the arrogance with which he sets himself apart from the illimitable universe and exalts himself to the position of its most valuable element. This boundless presumption of conceited man has misled him into making himself the image of God, claiming an eternal life for his ephemeral personality, and imagining that he possesses unlimited freedom of will. The ridiculous imperial folly of Caligula is but a special form of man's arrogant assumption of divinity. Only when we have abandoned this untenable illusion and taken up the correct cosmological perspective can we hope to reach the solution of the riddles of the universe. The uneducated member of a civilized community is surrounded with countless enigmas at every step, just as truly as the savage. Their number, however, decreases with every stride of civilization and of science, and the monistic philosophy is ultimately confronted with but one simple and comprehensive enigma, the problem of substance. Still, we may find it useful to include a certain number of problems under that title. In the famous speech which Emile Dubois-Raymond delivered in 1880 in the Leibniz session of the Berlin Academy of Sciences, he distinguished seven world enigmas, which he enumerated as follows. 
1. The nature of matter and force. 2. The origin of motion. 3. The origin of life. 4. The apparently preordained orderly arrangement of nature. 5. The origin of simple sensation and consciousness. 6. Rational thought and the origin of the cognate faculty, speech. 7. The question of the freedom of the will. Three of these seven enigmas are considered by the orator of the Berlin Academy to be entirely transcendental and insoluble. They are the first, second, and fifth. Three others, the third, fourth, and sixth, he considers to be capable of solution, though extremely difficult. As to the seventh and last world enigma, the freedom of the will, which is the one of the greatest practical importance, he remains undecided. As my monism differs materially from that of the Berlin orator, and as his idea of the seven great enigmas has been very widely accepted, it may be useful to indicate their true position at once. In my opinion, the three transcendental problems, one, two, and five, are settled by our conception of substance. Vide chapter 12. The three which he considers difficult, though soluble, three, four, and six, are decisively answered by our modern theory of evolution. The seventh and last, the freedom of the will, is not an object for critical scientific inquiry at all, for it is a pure dogma based on an illusion, and has no real existence. The means and methods we have chosen for attaining the solution of the great enigma do not differ on the whole from those of all purely scientific investigation, firstly experience, secondly inference. Scientific experience comes to us by observation and experiment, which involve the activity of our sense organs in the first place, and secondly of the inner sense centers in the cortex of the brain. The microscopic elementary organs of the former are the sense cells, of the latter groups of ganglionic cells. The experiences which we derive from the outer world by these invaluable instruments of our mental life are then molded into ideas by other parts of the brain, and these, in their turn, are united in a chain of reasoning by association. The construction of this chain may take place in two different ways, which are, in my opinion, equally valuable and indispensable induction and deduction the higher cerebral operations the construction of complicated chains of reasoning abstraction the formation of concepts the completion of the perceptive faculty by the plastic faculty of the imagination in a word consciousness thought and speculation are functions of the ganglionic cells of the cortex of the brain just like the preceding simpler mental functions we unite them all in the supreme concept of reason. Footnote. As to induction and deduction, vide the natural history of creation. 
by reason only can we attain to a correct knowledge of the world and a solution of its great problems reason is man's highest gift the only prerogative that essentially distinguishes him from the lower animals nevertheless it has only reached this high position by the progress of culture and education by the development of knowledge the uneducated man and the savage are just as little or as much rational as our nearest relatives among the mammals apes dogs elephants etc yet the opinion still obtains in many quarters that besides our godlike reason we have two further and even surer methods of receiving knowledge emotion and revelation we must at once dispose of this dangerous error emotion has nothing whatever to do with the attainment of truth that which we prize under the name of emotion is an elaborate activity of the brain which consists of feelings of like and dislike motions of assent and dissent impulses of desire and aversion it may be influenced by the most diverse activities of the organism by the cravings of the senses and the muscles the stomach the sexual organs etc the interests of truth are far from promoted by these conditions and vacillations of emotion on the contrary such circumstances often disturb that reason which alone is adapted to the pursuit of truth and frequently mar its perceptive power no cosmic problem is solved or even advanced by the cerebral function we call emotion and the same must be said of the so-called revelation and of the truths of faith which it is supposed to communicate they are based entirely on a deception consciously or unconsciously as we shall see in the sixteenth chapter we must welcome as one of the most fortunate steps in the direction of a solution of the great cosmic problems the fact that of recent years there is a growing tendency to recognize the two paths which alone lead thereto experience and thought or speculation to be of equal value and mutually complementary philosophers have come to see that pure speculation such for instance as plato and hegel employed for the construction of their idealist systems does not lead to knowledge of reality on the other hand scientists have been convinced that mere experience such as bacon and mill for example made the basis of their realist systems is insufficient of itself for a complete philosophy for these two great paths of knowledge sense experience and rational thought are two distinct cerebral functions the one is elaborated by the sense organs and the inner sense centers the other by the thought centers the great centers of association in the cortex of the brain which lie between the sense centers confer chapters seven and ten true knowledge is only acquired by combining the activity of the two nevertheless there are still many philosophers who would construct the world out of their own inner consciousness and who reject our empirical science 
precisely because they have no knowledge of the real world. On the other hand, there are many scientists who still contend that the sole object of science is the knowledge of facts, the objective investigation of isolated phenomena, that the age of philosophy is past and science has taken its place. Footnote. Rudolf Wirchau, Die Gründung der Berliner Universität und der Übergang aus dem Philosophischen in das Naturwissenschaftliche Zeitalter. Berlin, 1893. This one-sided overestimation of experience is as dangerous an error as the converse exaggeration of the value of speculation. Both channels of knowledge are mutually indispensable. The greatest triumphs of modern science, the cellular theory, the dynamic theory of heat, the theory of evolution, and the law of substance, are philosophic achievements not however the fruit of pure speculation but of an antecedent experience of the widest and most searching character at the commencement of the nineteenth century the great idealistic poet schiller gave his counsel to both groups of combatants the philosophers and the scientists does strife divide your efforts no union bless your toil will truth e'er be delivered if ye your forces rend since then the situation has happily been profoundly modified while both schools in their different paths have pressed onward towards the same high goal they have recognized their common aspiration and they draw nearer to a knowledge of the truth in mutual covenant at the end of the nineteenth century we have returned to that monistic attitude which our greatest realistic poet goethe had recognized from its very commencement to be alone correct and fruitful footnote confer chapter four of my general morphology eighteen sixty six critique der naturwissenschaftlichen methoden all the different philosophical tendencies may from the point of view of modern science be ranged in two antagonistic groups they represent either a dualistic or a monistic interpretation of the cosmos the former is usually bound up with teleological and idealistic dogmas the latter with mechanical and realistic theories dualism in the widest sense breaks up the universe into two entirely distinct substances the material world and an immaterial god who is represented to be its creator sustainer and ruler monism on the contrary likewise taken in its widest sense recognizes one sole substance in the universe which is at once god and nature body and spirit or matter and energy it holds to be inseparable the extra-mundane god of dualism leads necessarily to theism and the intra-mundane god of the monist leads to pantheism the different ideas of monism and materialism and likewise the essentially distinct tendencies of theoretical and practical materialism are still very frequently confused 
as this and other similar cases of confusion of ideas are very prejudicial and give rise to innumerable errors we shall make the following brief observations in order to prevent misunderstanding one pure monism is identical neither with the theoretical materialism that denies the existence of spirit and dissolves the world into a heap of dead atoms nor with the theoretical spiritualism lately entitled energetic spiritualism by ostwald which rejects the notion of matter and considers the world to be a specially arranged group of energies or immaterial natural forces two on the contrary we hold with goethe that matter cannot exist and be operative without spirit nor spirit without matter we adhere firmly to the pure unequivocal monism of spinoza matter or infinitely extended substance and spirit or energy or sensitive and thinking substance are the two fundamental attributes or principal properties of the all-embracing divine essence of the world the universal substance confer chapter twelve end of chapter one